welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Hey guys, just going to thank our Patreon members as well as some new ones for the month. Thank you, Shadira, for coming in and becoming a new Patreon patron. <laughs> Also, thank you to Southern Gothic, Jules, Cara Demezio, Landshark, Murderific Podcast, Obscura, a true crime podcast, and Strictly Homicide. So if you want to help out the collective a little bit more, feel free to sign up on Patreon. And now to the episode. Welcome back, devotees. I have a new friend with us. Hi. This is Meredith. She's my rugby little. I love her. She came to visit. <laughs> we are two bottles of wine and two uh, gin and tonics and two-ish. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a day. We've had dim, dim sum. Quite a day, honestly. We battled Cincinnati traffic, which really wasn't that bad. We went to like the biggest liquor store I've ever seen in my whole life. Yeah, we went to Party Source. It's a great place. Yeah, that was fun. I needed some more whiskey. And gin. So we walked in the door and they were giving us Maker's Mark. That was amazing. I mean, I'm not going to say no. Right. If you And of course, they're like, do you want tea with this? And uh, my response is, no, thank you. Please give it to me straight. The 46-year-old one? Yes, thank you. Yes, that. <laughs> Please, that. So we, yeah, like I said, we've had a day. And uh, we're going to now tell some stories. It's late. Love it. We both are nocturnal now. Officially. Officially. <laughs> I'm going to go first. We're going to talk about the opium wars. So Ooh. what do you know about opium and or wars? But yeah, okay. So opium and wars. Well, um, I know that opium, it doesn't, isn't DMT opium? Isn't that like what you release when you die? I don't think That's so. That's what I heard. Okay, well, maybe I'm wrong. You get morphine when you die. So you're, you don't get the death rattle. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. It's It's been a year. <laughs> it has been a year. It's been a minute. I don't know. I know the opium, it's like very addictive and it's used for um, like the pain relief stuff. And it's a huge problem in Ohio, isn't it? Isn't oh, yeah. it's like the opio- opioid capital of the country? Isn't that where we live? Yeah. Isn't that so fun? What a fun fact. <laughs> Ohio, full of serial killers and opioid epidemic. What a lovely pair, honestly. Please come live here. <laughs> I'm the worst, like, ambassador of the state ever. Ah, We're selling it, man. Let's, everybody is going to move here. We're going to have overpopulation problems. It's going to be ridiculous, all because of us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, uh, wars. I don't know very much about those, because I've never been in one, but I have generally idea, you know, that doesn't sound like fun. It's not. So, the, there's two opium war there's two it's between britain and yes france always britain and france no germany wrong continent india it's from india oh wait no they like own india um (laughs) i don't know what time this is i'll give you a hint it's the 1830s to 1860s so it's somewhere they don't own yet which is a very broad description. That is a very broad description. Um, I don't know. Wrong continent. That's interesting. Is it South America somewhere? You were right. Co- semi-right continent with India. Okay, so like, it's Asia-ish, at least. Um, it's Asia proper. China? Yes. Okay. <laughs> nice. That should have been my first guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the big... China was already semi-open to the West. Mm-hmm. And this is where the Brit- British were like, Hey, motherfuckers. 
Let's knock this shit open. Let's crack this walnut. Let's do it. And yeah, this is really where China's, I would say, hostility to the West really blooms. Of an era, yes. if you will. So it's really a point when China is a key role in international trade. They're very popular. And at the time, op- traders in opium are Britain, U.S., Turkey, India, Southeast Asia, as well as domestically for China. Mm. And, you know, it's it's not a new thing for people to be in like using opium because it's really just the poppy. So you basically break down the poppy plant into a liquid, morphine, right? Sophioid. That's you can do it in a lot of different ways. It depends on which poppy you use. It oh, has an gotcha. addictive quality. Quality. Why do I know this? I don't know. Science. I can't remember why I learned this, <laughs> but I know it. Probably I got fascinated by something and went down a deep, dark uh, rabbit hole. Mm. We're not going to talk about that. Love this. So the first real boom um, is after tobacco is introduced from the New World. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the Americas, we had tobacco. Mm-hmm. Old World did not have tobacco in the 16th century. And so they basically would mix opio like dried leaves with the tobacco so it's like a mixed interesting okay get a little high but not that much the Qin dynasty in court was not really hostile to useful trade so they're they're like we're cool with trade we need trade as anyone does so between 1869 and 1727 they've negotiated treaties with russia to get furs from siberia for tea and they allowed to you know have Russians living in foreigner guest houses in Beijing. So there's like working relationships with Eastern and Western merchants, and they've traded throughout the Central Eurasian area. Um, they worked with the Burkhan and Kazakh nomads for wool, horses, meat. So, you know, it's not like they're isolating themselves, as most people would say. They're out there doing their thing, being a, you know, an empire. Right. Just doing empire things, just you know, <laughs> just doing casual it. trade, taking stuff over, taking over people. It's fine. Hey, land, people, animals, you name it, I want it. Let's go. I'm an empire. So they also understood that the southern coastal trade, which is where Western Europeans come into play, is just as important. So they developed the Canton trade system, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But basically, they established a way to regulate trade in the 18th century, which is the 1700s. Okay. You know, the, the general thing is 1800s, you, like century, if it's a century, mm-hmm. you minus one to get the... Right, to get the deck, hundreds. Yeah, to get the hundreds. So yeah. 18th century, 1700. So basically, Western traders can only trade through the port of Canton or Gansuzao. I'm going to go with that's what it is. All right. right. I'm not going to correct you <laughs> because I don't know how. <laughs> the one person who will text me and tell me that... Please don't. <laughs> I know who you are. Please. <laughs> and so within that, within Canton, they could only reside within a certain space. So they have like a warehouse and they can't bring their families there and they can only stay a couple months. So they're like, okay, you you can come to the city. You have your, like, the company has a warehouse. So the warehouse can stay, but individual traders can't stay very long. So imagine, think of what we have that's similar. It's like you're a traveling salesman. Right. So you spend a couple months in each place, getting to know it, and keep moving. Right. 
and the next one from your company will come in the next time and keep moving and keep moving. So why would they do that? Why would it be beneficial to keep people moving through and not just have somebody know the area and know the people and keep selling? Because they don't want them settled. They okay. want the they want China to stay Chinese. I see. Because they view Westerners as the other. They're different. They're not the same. Gotcha. They're not Chinese. So Qing officials really supervise this. They check in often. They make sure that there's only licensed merchants, so no black market anything as much as they can. And they have a monopoly of uh, through a guild of Chinese merchants called the Kohong, and the Western merchants cannot contact Qing Dynasty officials directly. So, you know, there's no really formal diplomatic relation. It's all through informally through merchants. Interesting. That's just, you know, it's how they do business. For something being so highly regulated, it's weird that it's so very under the table diplomatically. It's very desperate. You know, it's not, there's no close knit. It's, everything's very spread out. Very mm-hmm. different. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> it's, but it's the best system they came up with. So the Qing Emperor regarded, you know, all this trade as a form of tribute or gifts given personally for his rule. Western traders for really had to conduct trade through licensed monopoly companies, aka the British East India Company, which anyone who's studied India knows the name. <laughs> I have studied India in this period frequently and or earlier. So I know a lot about these India company and the Dutch VOC, which is a similar system. Mm-hmm. So both sides, like both of these companies learn how to make profits, profits by cooperating with each other. So instead of like working, they work within the system, but they use the wiggle room to be like, mm, I know you, you know, our company, you know, we're good for it. And like sliding a dollar across the table kind of thing <laughs> on top of it, Hong merchants and intermediate, Inter- key intermediaries um, between both develop close relationships with their counterparts and pretty much teach them the ways of Chinese, how to say it, bureaucracy. Interesting. And as the time goes on, you know, we're starting in the 16th, like mid 1600s, we're going to the 1700s. The demand from the British market is growing exponentially. So they're struggling to keep up. So in when they're starting to trade, the British are getting tea exports from China of 92,000 pounds. By 1700, they're getting 2.7 million pounds in 1750. So in 50 years, they've gone from maybe under a million to doubling and a half it. So they really fucking like tea. <laughs> well, that's not news. By 1800, the East India Company was buying 23 million pounds of tea per year at the cost of Freddy for this. I'm ready. Hit me with it. 3.6 million pounds of silver. Because did I mention the Chinese government only deals in silver? No, you did not. Wait, so there's no currency between the two? There's that's no- their currency is in silver between international trade. You have to trade in silver. Wow. That'll come up a little bit. So is there no exchange rate? Like The exchange rate is the exchange rate of silver. It's just silver. That's yeah. It. So it's pounds it, of silver. Yeah. So it's not like they'll accept pound, pound sterling. They'll only accept silver in exchange for things. I'm sure that caused issues. There's no way that went over super easily. There's no freaking way. But the British were like, yeah, the pound's not important. It's fine. We'll give it up. We'll, we'll ignore it for this. Yeah. So they're try- the British are trying to deal with this trade deficit because they're giving millions of pounds of silver to the Chinese. Right. And they're only getting back tea to sell back to their citizens. But, you know, it takes so long to get it across the ocean and everything. So there's a huge trade deficit. Hmm. And, you know, 
at this time, the East India Company is in there to make a profit, and they're not seeing a profit. Right. That's how they end up taking over all of fucking India. <laughs> True. So, guess what they used to even this trade deficit? I'm gonna guess, given what we're talking about, war. Some kind of opium. Hey, there Opium. <laughs> and where did they get it? Bengal. Because, you oh. know, in 1950, or, sorry, not 19, in 1757, that's when uh, the East India Company, yes, the company took over Bengal. Not the country of Britain. The company, a, a, a company, an incorporated company took over an entire area. That would be like if Walmart was like, all right, we want Oklahoma. Yeah. That's ours now. As a state, we are Walmart. And they have a, they have a military to do it. Oh my God. No way. The East India Company is fascinating in that it was a company that had bureaucrats, yes, which you expect, but they also had an army. Jeez. And they also could then call upon their nation to be like, hey, they're picking on us, send more troops. And they would do it? Yeah. That's insane. That's how Britain got India. That is absolutely insane. They kept it, like, the company pretty much kept it until Victoria's like, this, like, the parliament was like, this is ridiculous. We're struggling. Let's make it a colony of the crown instead of basically a colony of the company. And the East India Company was dissolved. By the way, that's not till the 1800s. That's later. Yeah. Wow. That's a long time <laughs> yeah. in between those two. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. There's also a famine that they caused in between that. Super casual. Super yeah. casual. Yeah. So within this, they did a three company kind of three company um, shell game. So Indian cotton and British silver to China. Chinese tea and other Chinese goods to Britain. So they're just like trading what goes where. So they keep moving around goods okay. to keep it balanced. On top of it, we mentioned that initially trade balance is heavy in China's favor because they want the tea, the porcelain, all these Chinese goods. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she mentioned, so they want Chinese tea, porcelain, and silk. So you, if you've ever toured a British stately home or you've watched like Downton Abbey and stuff like that, you notice yeah. there's porcelain, there's silks, or, like, 1800s period pieces like the Duchess or Pride and Prejudice. They're wanting, like, calico cottons and the prints. That's all Indian or Chinese. And that is too far. Okay, there we go. Um, But China didn't really want goods produced in Britain. So this is where the shell game kind of goes through. They just keep moving things around to keep it balanced. So, like I said, they would push silver and in- instead. And it's draining a lot of silver out of England. And this is where the poppy plants. So it's a sap of the poppy plants uh-huh. that has been used for medicinal purposes and rec- recreational purposes in China and Eurasia for centuries. So it's like um, the same base of cocaine. It's historically been used by indigenous people for simple reasons, but they like chew on leaf or they get the stuff. It's not as refined. It's like, have you ever... Okay, so I went to Peru. I've mm-hmm. been there for... A while, like I went for a yeah. couple weeks one time, and apparently, when you meet um, indigenous people, how they like instead of a handshake, mm-hmm. they have like these little purses, almost like um, crossbody kind of size bags, mm-hmm. and they keep them full of coca leaves. So they'll yeah. just take a few and they'll put it in yours, and then you take a few from yours and you put it in theirs, and that's like, yeah, like a greeting thing. It's kind of cool. Yeah, so it's it's kind of the same thing, like the coca leaf mm-hmm. and the pop. It's like used, but it's not abused. Right. Maybe a couple people abuse it, but not. But it's not common. No. And so... It's not like 1980s Miami. 
No, it's not white powder everywhere. Everyone has to be like, hey, you got something under your nose. Yeah. So, like I said, Britain then realizes they have this wonderful, wonderful way to get back at China. They have Bengal, and there's a profitable monopoly in opium there that they could ship to China. And by the early 19th century, there are more Chinese smoking British opium as a recreational drug than the British. Which, I mean, Britain has the same problem. You see it displayed in literature and all of that. But in China, it gets worse. And all of a sudden, it becomes an addict addiction where there, if you stop, if you try to stop smoking opium, like straight opium, you get chills, nausea, cramps. And you can die from withdrawal. Right. You have horrible withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. And once, you know, like any addiction, once they're addicted, they're going to do anything they can to get the drug. Luckily, the Chinese government goes, hey, this is a fucking problem. (laughs) You know, like you're supposed to do as a government. Well done. Good job, China. Good job. We're not judging our state. It's fine. Nope. We're not going to say anything about this. It's got a really strong handle on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fine. yeah, it's fine. No epidemic, no problem here. <laughs> have some more gin. Yeah, it's a good move. So they basically in 1800 banned the production and importation of opium. They're China like, did? yes. Okay. The Chinese, the Qing Dynasty was like, no, we're not dealing with this. <laughs> this is too much of a problem. We're not getting people to work. There's people just lit because. Anyone who's ever been on a painkiller knows what opium does. <laughs> you take a nice nap. Take one hell of a nap. It's great. You're out for a minute. <laughs> so I've had enough surgeries to know that I'm, you're out for a we've while. We've both played rugby. We've, we've had enough surgeries that we're like, I'm not saying it puts you to sleep, but it makes you take a nice nap. All I'm going to say is you're real comfortable for a while. So by 18... 18- 13, the Chinese government was like, okay, this is not working. Right. We're going to outlaw the, uh, we are going to outlaw the smoking of opium and anyone who gets caught breaking any of the portions law. So importing, selling, smoking, you get beat a hundred times. Ooh. So they're going to beat that addiction out of you. And so naturally... The British East India Company does what? Black market smuggling. Yeah! yeah! <laughs> oh my god, that voice. <laughs> so, they hire British American traders to transport those drugs into China. Oh, yeah, America! <laughs> the British are like, you get opium, you get opium, everybody gets opium! And they did. Wow. On top of it, they also hired Chinese smugglers. Right. Basically, the British and Americans would anchor off the coast. Imagine Prohibition in America with booze, but with opium. And the Chinese smugglers would come up, and it's off the Yangzhou coast, and distribute it within within China to a network of Chinese middlemen. So it's like a mutual British-Chinese-American system. Oh, kind of like, like a cartel. Yeah. But with more water. Lots more water. What? Cartels more... have lots of water. That's true. They do a lot of boats, but I don't know. Boats and hose. Boats and hose, man. I feel like there's more boats, less hose than this one. Yeah, lots more boats. By 1830, there were more than 100 Chinese smuggler boats working in the opium trade at the p- crisis point around 1834. And this is when the British East India Company loses its monopoly. So it had a document from the Crown saying... You're the only one who gets to do trade in India. So anyone who wants to do trade within India has to be part of the East India Company. Interesting. 
And this is when the, the British government goes, like I said, in this century, this is when the East India Company loses cold in India and it turns over to Crown Colony. And, you know, they had been doing some shady things like famines and murdering a bunch of people. Anyways, the dealers were lowering their price for selling, like their selling price, you know, so to get people to buy and spreading addiction. Right, you got to start the addiction, get your repeat customers, and then drive that price right up. Standard business model. So, in 30 years, mm-hmm. so 1810 to 38. Okay. Do you want to guess um, how much the imports increase? And they're they're increasing the size of the chests that are coming. We're going to talk about chests of opium. I'm going to guess that they doubled, like straight doubled. So, in 1810, it was 4,500. Okay. 4,500 what? Chests. Chests. Okay. Of opium. In 1838, it's 40,000. <gasps> That's a little more. <laughs> a little more than you thought. Yeah, a little bit. And the Chinese are consuming more and more. And, like, basically, opium's coming in. Right. Silver's going out. So it's what the British want. And they finally got something the Chinese want. Drugs. Right. Who doesn't want drugs? I mean, a lot of people. But those of us who We are in the Midwest, so that's true. In 1831, the Chinese emperor, so the Qing Dynasty emperor, Mm -hmm. was already upset about the traders breaking local laws, increasing addiction and smuggling, discovers that members of his army and government and students are smoking it. So he's like, I'm not having it. He's upset. 36, so five years later, Mm -hmm. they realize... They need to crack down on the 1813 ban, you know, the hundred beating, lashings, that kind of beating. Mm-hmm. It, they went through and closed opium dens, executed dealers. It's still getting worse. And so their emperor's like, okay, got to deal with this. Let's open up a debate on how to deal with this crisis. So let's go over the sides. The pragmatic approach is not focused on morality. Okay. Let's, they were like, okay, let's focus on users rather than producers. Okay. Production and sale should be legalized and taxed by the government. So let's get money back in that way. Okay. And if we tax the drug, it would make it too expensive for people to buy. So they couldn't smoke it or use it. And if we, like, take the money, it'll help reduce that trade deficit. So the other side, it's led up by Lin Zesu, who was a Chinese government official, very ambitious and capable. So they, he argued that it's a moral issue this is an evil that has to be eliminated by any means. Wow. You know, if you can't suppress the trade and addiction to it, there will be no peasants to work the land, no townsfolk to pay taxes, no students to study, and no soldiers to fight. So basically, you're going to cut out the functioning portion of society. There's going to be, like, bureaucrats and all that, but how are you supposed to function if you can't pay them? And then it's a continuous cycle. Instead of targeting users, we should... Stop and target the pushers. So this is kind of the users versus pushers debate that's in some regards still going on today. And in the end, Lin Zhu won the argument. So the people who are like, let's target the pushers. Mm-hmm. This can only go well, right? <laughs> sure. I'm optimistic. I don't know about you, but let's do it. So we're half an hour into this. The first opium war. Okay. Aren't there two? There. Yes. We're going to. Okay. Before I start going into the first one, we're only going to in-depthly cover the first one. Okay. Because it's 
kind of a lot of the same in mm. some regards. There's, I know the BBC did a series on it. There's like a lot of other places to find in-depth books and all that. So we're going to wet your palate, so-and-so, to the Opium Wars. In 1839, Lin Zhu arrives in Guangzhou, aka Canton, to oversee the ban on opium trade and crack down. So, you know, just imagine he shows up in his white hat. He's like, this town ain't big for both of us. And he's facing opium. He's going to approach this on several levels. You know, good. Mm -hmm. First, he wrote an open letter to Queen Victoria questioning Britain's political support of the trade and the morality of pushing drugs. He was like, Victoria, do you know your people are pushing drugs? (laughs) How dare they? Like, is that that how you want to live? And have your empire go? I really, I feel like there's a Mean Girls reference in there. Just a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like it could be a Mean Girls thing. She's a pusher. <laughs> she I would push be. people. <laughs> she's in the bird book. For sure. For the Chinese. And he rapidly enforced the 1813 ban. He arrested over, do you want to guess? Give me a range. 1,000 to 5,000. I'm going to go kind of like on the lower end here. I'm going to guess like 2,000 people. Close. Is there really? 1,600 Chinese dealers. Oh, wow. And seized and destroyed tens of thousands of opium pipes. He then demanded that foreign companies, specifically British companies, cool. so you imagine how happy they were about that. Very targeted. Turn over their opium supplies, but not for free, in exchange for tea. So he's like, okay, give us your opium. We'll give you tea. You can go back and trade that. Okay, well, it wasn't completely fruitless for them. At least they got something in return. Mm -hmm. That wasn't just him demanding, like, a toddler, give me all your drugs. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, I'm just picturing a toddler being like, give me your drugs. Yeah, exactly. Give me. He's like this rampant little baby. (laughs) Give me drugs. (laughs) Yeah, the British were like, nah, bro. Fair. Not about that. And so Lynn stopped all foreign trade and quarantined. Uh, Simulated it. Lynn stopped all foreign trade and then quarantined all, like, it, the area where foreign merchants were confined. So, remember I said in the Canton documents they had to live in certain areas with mm-hmm. their warehouses? Right. Yeah. Now they can't leave. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So, it's about six weeks of them being quarantined and basically, it's a siege. Let's not lie. It's a siege to get the, the opium. And finally, the merchants are like, okay, bro, we'll turn everything up. So they turn over 2.6 million pounds of opium. You want to guess how many chests that is? Like 50,000. 20,000? Okay. okay. I have no chest. idea how big a chest is, though. I'm assuming it's like a pirate chest, but without the... Like a treasure chest, but full of drugs? But with a flat top. Could yeah. you imagine if you found one of those, like, buried treasure, and you were like, I wonder what's in here, expecting gold or, like, rubies or something, and you open it, and it's just opium? It's probably really bad by now. Probably. Does that stuff expire? I think so. We'll have to ask, uh, people are wild. I feel like she would. Um, so, Lynn's troops seized all the drugs, destroyed them, mm-hmm. and including what was being held on British ships, the British superintendent, this is, I'm sorry, this is my favorite bureaucracy bullshit starting war. I love it. And so, the superintendent was like, these ships are at international waters, and Lynn was like, oh no! They're anchored around Chinese islands in, in between them. So Lin had 500 Chinese men destroy the opium. How, you ask? How do you destroy a drug? You mix it with lime. You know, the shit you use to put on top of bodies to get rid of it? Yeah. And salt. And then dumped it in the bay. And he 
even convinced the Portuguese, who are so well known around everywhere for going around and exploring and becoming great traders. They're like, you want us to do this? We'll just stay in this area. It's fine. It's cool. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> um, So they're in Macau, and they're like, hey, he's like, he's like hey, you want to expel the British? You keep your trading? Expel the British. You want to keep your trading? Expel the British. You want to keep your trading? Expel the British. Want to guess what they did? I'm going to guess they expelled the British. They did. Wow. I'm such a good guesser. <laughs> You're so good at this. And they went, the British went to Hong Kong. Mm. Oh, yeah. Bitches, this is also how the British got Hong Kong. Of course it is. I actually did not know that. Yeah. Um, I'm tired of things I wanted to talk about coming up in the news as I'm talking about them. Because it's real <laughs> awkward. Yeah, I believe it. Because I don't want to confront that yet. Fair enough. So, we're, we're basically having the British and the Chinese government going back and forth. Okay, so, between the two... You know, you have the British, the Chinese just being, like, slowly building up tough iron. You know, back and forth, back and forth. Like, uh, if you're going to take two sticks and rub them together, one's the Chinese, one's the British, and they keep doing things. Hmm. You know, that's going to build some friction. Yeah. On top of it, many, you know, British merchant smugglers, East India Company officials, went up to consulate officials and treaties they don't behave like a western society and on top of it british representatives in guanzhou represented requested that merchants turn over their open to lin specifically turn them over to one specific british official so that the british could the government mind you this is um merchants they're like turn them over to this government official the british will compensate you for your losses and it's like, we're going to deal with this short term. It's not going to be a problem. Not a short term problem. Because uh, guess what happens to the opium? It either disappears or gets destroyed. That's my guess. Oh, in hell, it gets destroyed. Oh, hell yeah. They're like, hey, you know how you feel about opium? Bye, bye, bye. And really for the British, they're like, we'll just keep them here. This leads to a clash between the British and Chinese warship. November 1938. To January 1940. 1900s now? 18. Sorry, let me read it up. Okay. We're going to start with part one. And this is pulling from MIT Visualization of the First Opium War by Peter C. Purdue. Pulling a lot from that. November 1838 to January 1841. So that's about not even two years. All this shit is going to happen. Oh boy. Yeah. Let's not lie. The Opium Wars packs a lot of shit in very short years. It's not the Hundred Years War. Well, that's good. So, November 3rd, no declaration of war, either side. And, you know, there's a little dramatic military action at the Huanbai Canton Bay. On Canton Bay. So, two British frigates. So, ships. So, there's one with 28 guns, the Voltage, and uh, 18 gun. Python, who took on the 29 British vessels blockading the har- harbor. So there, of the Chinese, there's 16 war junkets and 13 fireboats, which fireboats were packed with straw, brushwood, and covering chests of gunpowder. Their goal is basically to set them on fire and push them to the enemy to blow up the enemy. Uh, who do you think won? I'm going to guess the British one. There's the whole British Navy thing, yeah? Yeah. Did they? Yeah, it wasn't even close. Really? One of the junkets was blown to a bit by a lucky shot. 
Other junkets were sunk, um, heavily damaged. Only one British soldier was wounded. <laughs> there was one person. One guy. There was one guy. One guy broke his arm or whatever. Yeah. There are 15 Chinese killed. Okay. So one wounded to 15 killed. I will take those numbers. Commissioner Lee sends his report back to the throne saying, what do you expect? Kill the motherfuckers. Basically. Yeah. Free victory. We did great. Oh my god, the British were defeated. It's amazing. Ah, yeah. So then we have Captain Elliot, who then requests reinforcement. So he's the British side. Be dispatched to Canton. So he's sending him back to, like, the East Company. We then send him back to England. Imagine you get a game of telephone, but actually with letters. So, like, there's real records of communication. It's not just whatever you think the person next to you said. Yes. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, you're just passing the letter on, but you're in a different country, so you have to reach farther okay. and farther. Yeah. So we still have this debate about opium, but there's a formal declaration of war against China issued on January thirty first, nineteen on January thirty first, eighteen forty. Not by London, as you expect, you know, where the monarch is and Parliament, but British authorities in India acting on behalf of the home government, a.k.a. London government, and um, they start amassing a British fleet to go to China in India. Can they do that? Yeah. Actually, they can. And okay. they do. Uh, India is a weird situation, and no one really deals with it for a hot second. I recommend going back to the Black Hole of Calcutta episodes to talk about it, but I mean... It's very weird because it's a company, but they're given permission by the government, and the government has seen what's happening, and it's, you know, a hot mess? Mm-hmm. East India Company. <laughs> In the terms of where they get their direction from, in regards. So, Commissioner Lee, uh, who is in command of the Imperial Army at Canton, and on top of you know, dealing with the Battle of Chumai, so the defeat they just had, is aware that basically the Chinese is too weak to deal with the native for like these other forces directly. So the Western ships and all that, they can't deal with him. He continues to attempt to suppress like opium trap. He's not dealing with a problem yet. Basically he's like, gotta deal with all this opium. Gotta deal with all this opium. And he's not dealing with, you know, Europeans dealing diplomacy. And he misread the anger, determination, profit-seeking, national pride of the foreigners of in this country. Specifically, the British. In 1839, he dropped a letter to Queen Victoria, but never sent it. Never sent it. At all. So, I know, that, that could have helped. He tried to send another letter. Actually dispatched it, but it never reached her. Later on that year, on top of it, six seamen are accused of murder in Poulon and return to England and they don't get charged. So six Britons are accused of murder in Poulon. So they're accused of murder in China and they get sent back to England. Nothing happens. While the forces uh, dispatched to Canton in response to Captain Ellis, please arrive in June 1840. So what do we get? And these, mind you, sorry. These are under the um, command of his cousin, Rear Admiral Sir George Elliot. So we have another Elliot. Oh boy. A lot of family love here. So this fleet, 48 ships, 16 warships of 540 guns, four armed steamers, 27 transports. So just to transport troops back and forth. Mm -hmm. A troop ship, 
a carrier for both fuel and steamers, and the troops in the form of 6 million pounds of coal and 16,000 gallons of rum. Just love it. It's important. Rum is important. It's important to morale, okay? A drunk soldier is a happy soldier. So, total, 4,000 men. And as they go on, more people keep showing More soldiers keep showing up. Because of all the rum. Basically. On top of it, the first sea, the first steam and sail-powered iron warship ever built hmm. for the East India Company and really anywhere else named Nemesis arrived in Macau in November 1840 after a pretty dangerous journey from England. So, new reinforcements in the 1840s bring more iron steamers, so basically iron-hulled ships, as well as um, steel power warship, and they get around a human power of 12,000. Oh, so not more than the Chinese, but eh, we'll get to it. So, the British assert their authority and demand, um, among a lot of things, to get compensation for the opium that was seized, abolition of the Canton trade system, a.k.a. they can only trade in Canton, and uh, the right to occupy one or more of the islands off the coast of China. One or more? Mm -hmm. That's really vague. You know, they aim high. You have to have that white man confidence. (laughs) Think about it. Think about it. You gotta have that big dick energy. Like, hey, we'd like one, at least, but we take more. Admiral Elliot um, confronted the Chinese forces by Lin, who had assembled at Canton. He imposed his own naval blockade against the Chinese and proceeded to travel north along the coastline with his own forces, accompanied by Charles Elliot, his uh, chief diplomat on the scene. They wanted to go north to basically get to the emperor in Peking, a.k.a. Beijing. The second objective was to pressure the Qing court into agreeing to negotiations to cut off northern China from the resource-rich and really the eh, economically important south. So they're trying to get their best economic situation trade deals in. By July, after Black Emoy or Zemin, local officials refused to... Um, the, the location where local officials refused to allow landing. The fleet approached the Yangtze River Delta, some 700 miles north of Canton. So they've made extreme distances at this point. So July 4th, officers from the warship Wesleyan, along with the interpreter Carl Gusevla, met with local officials in um, Zhaozhan or Suzhan Island, in an attempt to persuade them to surrender peacefully. They occupied Shuzhen, and blo- the fleet then moved north and blockaded Ningxpo, or Ningxpo, uh, which is a major port close by, but the ofi- officials refused to accept a letter settling for like, the British demand. They keep going north to, and again, I'm sorry, I do not speak Asian languages very well, Tianxin, or Xianxin, and the Piho, or Hahe, the strategic waterways leading to Peking. So they're they're slowly moving closer to the emperor, basically. They're if you're going from Canton to Beijing, they're going along the coast. While the expedition is leading force to forward to Tenshin, the British are also working on a show of force in the south, known as the Battle of the Barrier. The battle um and barrier go across the isthmus, separating the Portuguese controlled Macau. 
to the rest of the mainland. So they're trying to gain as much control trade-wise and showing their dominance. Commissioner Lin uh, has mobilized forces, threatening to drive the British from Macau. You know, they're going, they're going back and forth. This starts in August 19th. The British warships are silent. Silence the Chinese batter battery at the barrier. They go back and forth and they destroy the Chinese military stores and then withdraw. After this con- confrontation and disparity of casualties, um, you know, the Chinese are minimizing their losses to the emperor on top of this. The British, like, I, I don't think we quite know how many are lost by the Chinese, but the British lose four wounded and no one's killed. So they're doing pretty well. Yeah, that's, like, not bad numbers at all. No, That's, no. like, rugby game numbers. Yeah. <laughs> we got four wounded, no one's dead, let's all get beer and pizza. Solid plan. Yeah. So the Chinese said they have seven or eight men killed, and a, a, an English observer said, let's multiply that by ten. Oh. Uh, and on top of this, Ling, remember, he reports this back again as a victory. So... The emperor thinks, like, we're doing great, you know, winning left and right. getting all kinds of false information. Yeah. So he's like, I don't have to worry about this at all. So he's a little worried because he's like, might be losing my position. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's pretty good grounds to get fired from your military post. By the end of August, um, the fleet carrying both Elliots reached pretty close to Peking. Mm -hmm. And they succeed in conveying that the British well, the British want to local officials at Tenzin. They enforce the real nature of the local threat. And the Emperor is pissed as hell. <laughs> and all of a sudden Lin goes from hero to scapegoat. It's like, Lin, this great person who's defeating the, the, the Westerners. Oh my god, he's not. Look at this person who's messed up our empire. August 21st, the Emperor chastises him harshly. Quote, externally you want to stop the opium trade but it has not been stopped internally you want to wipe out the outlaws the opium smugglers and smokers but they have not been cleared away you are just making excuses with empty words nothing has been accomplished but many troubles have been created thinking of these things i cannot contain my rage end quote which is a good way to say bitch you did not achieve what you wanted to achieve you have not even contained the problem and you've created more problems so he's Stripped of his imperial title of commissioner in September, he's allowed to remain in Canton, so this is Lin, that fall and winter to help the next person. Oshan, Lin's successor and um, the Mandarin appointed to deal with the British, Rosenfeld even more quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Tough job. It's like, you blink and he's gone. Lin warned the emperor that negotiating, uh, Lin warned that negotiating with foreign never works, quote, the more they get, the more they demand, and if we do not overcome them by force of arms, there will be no end to our troubles. Which is kind of true, a little bit. Quishan took a softer, softer line to trade. Like, okay, no, the British let them withdraw without threatening to cut their trading privileges, making some concessions so we can keep it. He even persuaded the two Elliots to return to Canton instead of keep going north towards the emperor because he's like you know we're gonna do serious negotiations you should come back come back and um they even got the british to withdraw from macau by november so late december charles elliott begins negotiation negotiations in canton and you know 
they want the opening of five ports of Canton, Amoy, Bukau, Busao, um, Ningbo, and Shanghai. Sessions of an island indemnity for both the value of confiscated opium and the cost of mil- the military expedition. So this is going to be how they get Hong Kong for a hundred years. Hushan um, offered only a smaller indemnity than requested, and even then he was he did this without the Qing court's acknowledgement. So not great. In January of 41, the British realized that Hushan was not prepared to make these concessions. They have the fleet reinforced during this time and they're like, bitch, you wasted my time. I'm gonna make it better than you thought it could be. And they go to Chumai and the, the sister fort of Thakawa in the, um, really to battle over the Bukarash Taish, which leads into Canton. So they're going for the strait that leads to Canton. And they're battling it out right there. This is the battle, uh, the second battle of Chumai, which takes place on January 7th. It lasted an hour and ended with both forts captured, 500 or more killed, and perhaps half that number wounded. And in an hour? In, in one hour. By, who do you think won? The British. Oh, of course, yeah. And uh, the British only suffered 38 wounded. So the Chinese had 500 or more killed and 38 wounded by the other side. On January 20th, the British show up at Canton like, hey, bitches. Quishan acknowledged he, he, like, he couldn't really do anything. China was willing to cede Hong Kong, pay indemnity of $6 million, engage in official relations on equal footing, reopen Canton trade. So this is the Convention of Chumai, which was submitted for approval. And again, the emperor is pissed as hell. I mean, yeah, I feel like I would be. If you lose that badly and you thought you were winning the whole time because your most trusted military advisor is like, yeah, I'm killing it. Of course you're going to be mad. So, Huishan is in prison, sentenced to death. His family's property is confiscated in May 1842. And in May 1842, his sentence was commuted. He has been banished to a remote area and the Amur River, far north of China, um, Charles Elliott, also receives um, really a reprimand from the government, his own government, so the British government. And in April 20, 21st, Palmerston, another British official, castates him for having settled for the lowest possible terms and strips him of his appointment. Basically, Palmerston is like, hey, Elliot, you can't get enough compensation for what was destroyed and how dare you withdraw British forces from strategic positions. I'm going to fast forward to the aftermath of the war just for time's sake. Okay, so it ends in 1842 with the Chinese officials signing at gunpoint. So it gets so bad that the br- Basically, the British have very modern ships. They're able to move people very quickly. They can keep doing the same thing over and over and over to the Chinese, and they can't adapt quickly enough. It does seem like they're very naval dominant. Yeah, so it's the Treaty of Nanjing. This um, provides great benefits. Um, Deepwater Port Hong Kong, they get um, compensation for the British government and merchants. Five new ports. Um, Guangzhou, Shanghai, Zanmin, Ningbo, Guzha. Um, so, on top of that, the British merchants and their families could live there. Uh, they are subject to British laws, not Chinese, and they get the most favored nation clause rather than um, any other situation. So, they get favored for their personal nation's clause, like laws over 
Chinese. And pretty much for the Chinese, this gives them nothing. On top of it, opium rises to a peak 80,700... 7,000... Sorry, let me do it. Like, so opium rises to 87,000 chests in 1879. After that, it declines, really ending in the First World War, when production within China outgrew foreign production. So it's like, they kind of start just supplementing itself. Trade did not expand as much as um, the foreign merchants hoped, so they blame, continue to blame Chinese, the Chinese government. Aftermath led to a bitter struggle between the two factions. The peace faction, which was aligned with the users faction, aka we should help the users, not the pushers, and the war faction, aka the pushers. Um, peace was really temporary. In addition, the Treaty of Nanjing ended the Canton system, which had been in place since the 17th century. So it had been in place for over 100 years. And they were just like, nah, bro. Bye. So in 1884, a system of unequal treaties gets in place between China and Western powers. This is with the most favored nation clause. The treaties allowed Westerners to build churches and spread Christianity and treaty ports. Western Western imperialism... Western imperialism and free trade is um, the first victory for the Western Westerners on the side. When the emperor dies in 1850, his successor dismissed the peace faction in favor of those who supported Lin Zhu, and the new Chinese emperor tried to bring back Lin from exile, but Lin died on his way back. The Chinese court kept trying to bring back excuses, but couldn't like deal with it. So second, you open a new war. Now, I'm going to go faster on this one, just to get the it. 1856, it breaks out and continues till 1860. The British and the French ca- end up capturing Beijing, forcing China into a new round of unequal treaties. So basically, treaties were broken, disagreements about how they should be interpreted. The French are now involved. Of course. And so we get unequal treaties, indemnities, aka concessions, and opening of 11 more treaty uh, port cities. So they keep opening more ports on the coast to Why? the Westerners. Because they want to trade more. Oh, okay. And so it's easier to trade with a bunch of different cities. So right. Can, all of that. So think of it, if you can only trade with New York. So you can only go to New York. Okay. Versus being able to go up to all the cities on the coast. Right. That makes sense. You want to go to all the cities on the coast. Right. Because you can, like, do better. Um, on top of it, there's increased Christian missionary work and legalization of the opium trade. They have new ports that are open and the Chinese are slow on implementing agreements and implementing the legal trade. So they're just, they, they know they have to do it, but they're like, I'm going to be eternal about this. So we don't have to deal with it. British merchants are like, Hey government, you represent me. Let's get this done. Government's hands are tied and they keep trying to work through it. Meanwhile, the British realize they can use this. They're like, hey, you're not doing this. We can crack open that walnut further. So they keep slowly, if you imagine a walnut, they keep cracking it further and further open. They're like, we can do this. Are you saying the British are after that sweet, sweet nut? They are (laughs) after that sweet, sweet nut. So, you know, basically, we're going to speed through a lot of this. Okay. There's a lot of negotiation. Again, there's a lot of great books that cover this, and I should cover them in two separate episodes, but it's late. Um, <laughs> it's 1 a.m. So the war ends with a really weakened Qing dynasty now realizing they need to reconfront the relationship with the outside world, modernize their 
military, political, economic power because they could not deal with the Western pressure. After this, we have in 1839, you know, we have them imposing on China the free trade and legal rights of their citizens, a.k.a. British citizens. Well, the Chinese critics point out that the British made all these arguments about the principle of free trade and individual rights, and they're pushing opium, which is illegal in the country. And we then took this idea to confront the different ideas of the opium war for the British. Some in the West claim that the opium wars were about upholding ideas of free trade, so like, we can't help it that your country wants opium, you know? And others say British were acting in interest of protecting international reputation, challenging, like, other parts of the world. Some American historians are saying these conflicts are not as much about opium, about Western, um, but about Western powers desire to expand commercially, so it's more of an economic issue over the Chinese trading system. Others say it was um, to deal with the trade deficit and to even keep negatively on the Chinese society, but really I think the key thing to understand is this broke up a system that was 100 years old that was working for the country that established it. Yeah, they could have adjusted it, but it ends up with a country using losing property, weakening its political system, leading to numerous turnovers and revolutions. And we don't really see anything concrete until Mao, I would say even to the 1970s, Mao, like it finally calms down. Oh, that's a really long time in between those two. Yeah, we don't like we have like the Great Leap and all that. Within that, there's so much chaos within the Chinese system that really stemmed from the British poking at the Opium Wars. The first one, at least. So, I hope I got a lot of that in. And um, I really suggest I pulled a lot from the Asia-Pacific Curriculum and MIT Visualization of the First Opium War to get an basic understanding of it. So, I suggest you go and dig deeper. It's really deep. It's a great topic but this is a good overview to understand how this comes about um yeah how do you feel i feel like this is a lot like this these wars have huge political ramifications they lasted for hundreds of years and it all happened because the british wanted to sell a little bit of opium in china I mean, and yeah, it started because of this whole trade loop, but... Yeah, it ends up lasting... It's wild how politically significant and militarily significant this ended up being. Yeah, it lasts about 10 years, but it, it impacts over a century of history. Definitely, and I feel like we're still seeing arguments very similar to this today. Yeah, and it's so crazy. Like, you read something and be like, oh, I just read this the other day about something modern, and it blows your mind that we're having the same conversation we haven't learned anything right i mean i'm always so skeptical of whenever anybody says oh history repeats itself you know and in hearing that and studying history you hear that hundreds and hundreds of times over and even in law you're just like oh yeah history repeats itself we get it but no it really does like it's it it doesn't it just adapts to the situation and you have to learn from how the country dealt with it in the past dealt with the situation in the past like look oh it did this so maybe we should adapt our situation and i hate when people say history i know it's horrible it really is completely overused it's ridiculous but it wouldn't be so overused if it weren't at least a little bit true the truth is 
situations that appear similar keep popping up and we don't adapt to them. Yeah, it's, it's, ah, oh, it's frustrating. And I, this, I mean, there's a reason that legal precedent even exists. You know, yeah. if every case were different than the last one, there wouldn't be any reason to have such precedent. Yeah, and the thing is, people don't learn from base, the basis before, so we have to build that precedent. And I think that's the key. But we should end it before we go into a deep debate. Oh, we definitely should. <laughs> so, thank you, Meredith, for coming on. Of course. Traveling so far. Uh-huh. We're going to go finish our cupcakes. Yay. Um, and we'll see you next week with Meredith's story. Woo! I get to drink quietly in the corner. I'm Yay. just excited. So we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. What podcast brings you true stories of exceptionally smart and insanely dumb crimes every week? Dumb and busted, obviously. But Hannah, where is your one-stop shop if you want to hear about a killer nurse, a pervy arsonist, or a group of hella old dudes breaking into a vault? Dumb and busted. Allison, come on, seriously? We host the show together. Okay, last question. Where can I go if I need to hear the number one song of 1999, I Want It That Way? What? The Backstreet Boys album Millennium? How did we even get on this tangent? Oh, okay. Sorry for being the only one who's ever fallen victim to their tight harmonies and timeless songs. Anyway, please listen and subscribe to Dumb and Busted on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Crime you later! Hey, it's Aaron. And this is Jordan. Each week, we dig up the facts on fascinating felonies and mesmerizing misdemeanors. Join us as we prove that you don't have to know too much about the legal system to be crazy for a good true crime story. Subscribe to Crime Crazy on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And visit us at crimecrazypodcast.com. It doesn't even go here. of domesticity we're available on all podcatchers remember to rate review subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it our facebook and twitter are at domestic podcasts and our instagram is at the cult of domesticity we also have podcast merch at threadless uh as well if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation we have a paypal tip jar and a patreon which has some pretty great perks any topic suggestions feel free to email us at domesticpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com remember to stay domestic and cult free